0: Hello and welcome to Playback Daily for Monday, the 19th of February. I'm Louise Herity and here's some of what's coming up.
1: Yeah, and I'm I'm really you know I'm really proud Irishman. <laughs> I have to say that, of course I am, <laughs> uh, and uh, it, it means it means a lot a lot to me you know to be to be Irish. Um, So I don't know what else to say. Shall I sing a rebel song? (laughs)
2: Uh, My first book about mental health, Mad Girl, is a kind of way to go, if you have this thing too, please, it's like come and congregate around the book and we can know that we're not mad or we are mad, but we're not bad.
3: Yeah, but also they're, they're ones they know. So it's kind of a chicken and egg one because they know these books. They feel comfortable with these books, so they buy the books. Nostalgia plays a huge role.
0: Well, it was a great night for the Irish at the BAFTAs, as London correspondent John Kilrain reported on Morning Ireland.
4: For the second year running, Ireland was punching way above its weight at the BAFTAs. Killian Murphy, who won leading actor for his role in Oppenheimer, was happy to share his pride at the press conference afterwards.
1: Yeah, and I'm I'm really, you know, I'm really proud Irishman. (laughs) I have to say that. (laughs) Of course I am. Uh, and uh, it, it, mean, it means a lot, a lot for, to me, you know, to be, to be Irish. Um, so I don't know what else to say. Should I sing a rebel song? <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs> Meanwhile, the film Poor Things won in five categories, second only to Oppenheimer in the number of awards. It was produced by the Dublin based company Element Pictures. And joint managing director of the company, Andrew Lowe, says years of investment in the Irish film industry is paying off. Well, I think coming on the back of the awards that have been garnered the last couple of years, it's just it's further vindication of the maturity of the industry, I think. You know, having had a lot of investment over a long number of years, we're starting to see consecutive years of, of, of recognition, which is great to see. Like Barry Keoghan, Paul Meskell was nominated for the second year in a row. Although he lost out in the Best Supporting Actor category for his role in the film, All of Us Strangers. Last year, it was your first time being at the BAFTAs and you were you were talking about how special it was. Yeah. Now you're back again, are you getting used to this?
5: <laughs> no, 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 it's all downhill after this. I'll never be back, I'll never have him back. But uh, no, it's 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 just a massive honor. Like I, I love film, I love the job that I get to do and then to come along and spend an evening with amazing actors and people who just love and adore film it's it's a really special experience Good run this year and last year and um, Killian and everybody we're, we're, we're in a kind of a little bit of a good spot at the moment.
4: Irish talent is part of a bigger picture as most films are now international Irish producers Shirley O'Connor and Mae Breardon won awards for their contribution to the hard-hitting social realist drama Earth Mama. It is set in San Francisco about an African-American single mother battling with social services and it won an award for outstanding British debut. Mae Vreardon explains the process involved.
3: So our production, the production company Academy Films that we made it with, that is our production company, uh, is a British, 40 year old British production company, and so that was really important. And it came out of Film 4 originally, they developed it, and it's a real, it is a British film. It just happens that we're attached. Savannah is American British, so it's kind of got a whole global feeling, but it was born here, and that's why it's
5: been nominated in that category.
0: Producer Maeve and ending John Kilrain's report on Morning Ireland. Well, if you did miss the BAFTAs on TV last night, then don't worry as Oliver Callan had a comprehensive roundup on his show.
6: Uh, So to the BAFTAs, where Killian Murphy is a man of 2024 already. He has won his first BAFTA, which is kind of surprising. Uh, You'd think he would have got one for Peaky Blinders in the television uh, uh, category of the BAFTAs, but he didn't. He lost out to Ben Whishaw last year with the finale of Peaky Blinders having happened in 2022. Um, So now he has the Golden Globe for the first time. He has the BAFTA and next weekend is the next big test towards the Oscars. is the Screen Actors Guild. Remember those fellas who... Uh, We're on strike there for a long time. So if we can win there, uh, the Oscar will certainly be his. We'll know a little bit more this time uh, next week. Paul Giamatti in The holdovers snapping away at his heels. So it could be a photo finish for Best Actor Oscar on the 10th of March. I'm looking at Esther McCarthy in today's Irish Examiner. She's the film critic for uh, Cork's finest newspaper, which is very important, of course, on this topic. And... um, So she's saying the win comes at a crucial time the BAFTA win a crucial time in the lengthy season she says Murphy's BAFTA win comes at a crucial time when the potential for an Oscar win becomes almost as much about momentum as it does about the performance in the first place every BAFTA member gets to vote in a number of key categories including the best actor meaning that uh, Kelly Murphy goes into the home straight knowing there is broad support for his performance following the victory in London. Interesting, she also says here that uh, Murphy's been increasing his public profile in recent weeks. This is part of the campaign because it is an election campaign, the Academy of Motion Pictures and Sciences uh, that make up the Oscars. Voting section It's an election campaign So what has he been doing And it's all very unKillian Murphy Isn't it Just being out and about Doing tons of interviews um, But Esther McCarthy Points out there It's interesting to note That much of his work In doing all of this Campaigning Has been rooted In his home country Both an interview Murphy carried out For the iconic American television show 60 Minutes On CNN over the weekend And a profile With the actor For GQ magazine Were carried out On home turf So he's doing it From here and he's doing us fierce, proud, so he is. No Irish-born actor, they say, has won the Best Actor Oscar, um, although Daniel Day-Lewis has three Best Actor Oscars. And Brenda Fricker, of course, was Best Actress. So, really, the history here would be Cork's first ever Oscar. When it happens, dare we say it. Here is Killy Murphy in the press conference last night after his big win.
1: Well, I'm, I'm thrilled. I think it's a it's a great reflection on the state of cinema nowadays, you know, that this is a very complex, very challenging, three-hour R-rated movie about a physicist and about, you know, um, about a very kind of dark period in our history and that people came to see it uh, in, in huge numbers. And, you know, people meet me on the street, like, and say that they've seen the film five, six, seven times. And, you know... Like boys and girls, men and women, young and old, and that's kind of staggering and, and very humbling. But it's, I think it's, like I said, a great reflection on the state of cinema. And I think it's been a brilliant year for cinema.
6: It has, it has for sure, Killian. Uh, but I'm not sure we're going to see Oppenheimer multiple times. Quite a, quite a challenge a huge win of course as well for Andrew Lowe and Ed guyney they're the two Irish men who produce poor things that won five BAFTAs and they head into the Oscars now with 11 nominations but they are going likely to be pipped again to quite a lot of those by Oppenheimer as it um, Oppenheimers up all of the trophies uh, of course most people following these things are watching out for the dresses aren't they so you can um, scroll, click, like and ogle on all the clickable stories uh, that get more attention than the awards on the male sartorial note it's rarely mentioned but does nobody wear a tuxedo to a black tie event anymore? It's, it's, it seems to be a twist to the tux instead. Andrew Scott was head to toe in a full red suit, red shirt, open neck. He even said he was wearing red underpants. Um, navy, of course, everywhere. Killian Murphy, no white shirt at him, just head to toe in black. Barry Keoghan was in, he's always in a bit of a costume. It was kind of a weird Michael Jackson style thing he was wearing. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. was in grey morning tails and an open neck shirt. Uh, By the way, Robert Downey Jr., um, he feels really up himself to to me, I'm afraid. Um, uh, One of his award speeches over the season was him settling scores about bad reviews he got years ago. He was kind of pretending to be sarcastic about it. I like, honestly, I like his movies, Sherlock Holmes, but I can't abide the man at all. But I I can't abide him, but I, I am alone, I believe. He's a genius, apparently. Now, a lovely winner last night was Samantha Morton who accepted the British Film Academy's highest honour, the BAFTA Fellowship. And she dedicated it to every child in care and suffering poverty. And she said for her, it was nothing short of a miracle, um, remembering how she was growing up hungry and cold as a child growing up poor. And in this clip, in her acceptance speech, she talks about the importance of representation on screen. And Ken Loach, uh, the, the legendary director, was in the audience.
0: It's when I first saw Ken Loach's Kes a huge telly that was wheeled into my classroom i was forever changed forever because seeing poverty and people like me my life and my family on the screen i recognized myself you see representation matters you see the stories we tell they we, they actually they have the power to change people's lives
6: Yeah, that was a really touching one. Um, Now, it doesn't always work out well. David Beckham, remember him? He came from a normal background, became a superstar and sometimes they can go and ruin it all. Anyway, he was there presenting an award as part of his tiresome campaign to reboot his image after selling his soul to Arab oil and all that. I just couldn't help it. He's so Botox now, he kind of looks like Ryan Gosling's less hot sibling spent hours in a makeup chair getting prosthetics to look like Vladimir Putin. Is that enough of an image? It's all really stretched and everything uh, but anyway um, who, uh, Paul Meskell and Andrew Scott they got the rousing rousing reception they presented an award together somehow Andrew Scott wasn't nominated and somehow he at 47 looks younger than Paul Meskell who uh, just recently turned 28 uh, but there was a fun moment when Hugh Grant came on to present a best director and he was fresh from his turn as an Oompa Loompa in the uh, Willy Wonka preview film called Wonka uh, which came out at Christmas
7: Oompa Loompa Dumpa Dee now, the best director category. <laughs>
8: Oompa Loompa Dumperty Dong. Most of these films were frankly too long.
9: <laughs> Oompa Loompa Dumperty Da. But for some reason, the nominees are.
6: There we go. It was a clever twist. It was one of the funniest things that happened all night. Uh, David Tennant was the host. I didn't think he did a, a great job. If he was trying to be, if he was trying to be the comedian of the night, it didn't uh, work terribly well. Christopher Nolan obviously won best director, best picture. That's all going to be repeated probably in the Oscars as well. There was a huge surprise and another touching moment. Michael J. Fox uh, appeared on the stage and he. It was very emotional because he was brought out on a wheelchair because of his Parkinson's which he has long talked about and campaigned to raise money for the research on and it was his first visit to the BAFTAs I believe in, for 30 years he was presenting the Best Picture Awards so the big one and there was a huge response because his appearance wasn't announced beforehand and he received a, a standing ovation There's
10: a reason why they say movies are magic because movie a can
6: change your day it can change your outlook it can sometimes even change your life So he has done uh, great work um, over the years, raised tons of money. He was diagnosed actually with Parkinson's when he was just 29 years of age in 1991. And he went public with the information seven years later. And of course, he talked about how he took to drinking after what would have been a devastating diagnosis and the effect it had on his marriage to um, Tracy Pollan. So he was drinking heavily and hiding the wine bottles from his wife. He found it too hard to cope with his new illness. Uh, But he did and he got experimental drugs. He could control uh, the, the shakes and so on. And uh, he, in particular this year, released a, a, a documentary about his career and living with the devastating disease of Parkinson's and that earned him a BAFTA nomination. It was still a Michael J. Fox story. It was nominated for Best Documentary but it lost out to 20 Days in Mariupol uh, for obvious reasons. That's obviously the part the, the, the of the Ukraine war. Uh, there was some controversy, of course, at the BAFTAs because Matthew Perry, uh, they say, was left out of the in-memoriam section. Cue much, much uproar on social media and around the place until people point out, well, his movies weren't really his career. It was about the TV and the TV BAFTAs are in a couple of weeks' time and I'm sure they'll do it there. But that was kind of the win, you know, it was the the something to give out about section, really, wasn't it? The whole Matthew Perry thing.
0: Oliver Callan giving his take on the BAFTAs this morning and it's fair to say he's not Robert Downey Jr.'s biggest fan. It was great news for the Irish all round as Daniel Whiffen picked up his second gold medal at the World Swimming Championships and Darren Frehl filled us in on Morning
7: Ireland. What a wonderful performance. A second gold medal at the World Aquatics Championships in Doha. Yesterday he became... He he came first in the 1500 metres freestyle final and of course that follows up his win in the 800 on and Thursday and you know what Keane, the nature of this performance it's not just the gold like that's impressive but the nature of, of what he did there was so impressive he just blew the field away at one stage he was on track to break the world record he was so far ahead of the, the rest of them and I, I think for Him probably to have broken it, he probably needed a bit more pressure on him. In the end, he had to settle for a, an Irish record, which wasn't too bad. But at 40 minutes, 34.07 seconds, pure class, and still only 22. And Paris is on the horizon. We're, we're not getting too excited at all, are we? No, um, no. If that wasn't good enough, the, last night then, he was named the male swimmer of the finals. Unfortunately, he couldn't talk to us live this morning. He was upright nearly and on the long trek home from Doha. But he did reflect on his achievements before he left.
5: Yeah, amazing. I mean, uh, coming to this meet with uh, I mean, expectations of maybe just meddling for Ireland, being the first ever. And then, coming away with two gold medals and a pb it's just it's just so good i mean my goal wasn't to base it off other people it was to really just base it on myself on what i've done in training and i mean uh, my i just wanted to go out how easy and then uh, just stick at the pace and that's what we did and it worked out again for another swim 0.9 pb uh, i'm just happy with that and then um, the world record being so close you know everybody always wants a world record i got one short course i'd love to get one long course and I mean, I've got a long time left swimming, so I'm sure I'll hit it at some stage, but today wasn't the day, but I'm still happy because I got two goals and a PB at this meet. I mean, here it's basically the same schedule as one picked for me, and uh, I had the new event on the 400 freestyle, I made the, the final and that, and then just uh, my goals keep progressing, and obviously I progressed my time, and i so happy because um, Fukuoka, I was a bit off my PB, and to come into this world champs and really push it on in February, you know, not many people are going 14-34 in February, and I'm just happy it's, I'm one of them.
0: Swimmer Daniel Wiffen after his second gold medal win at the World Championships in Doha. Unions are demanding an immediate meeting with senior HSE officials and St. John of God management. This follows a decision by St. John of God to end its operations in August and transfer its services to the HSE. Cian McCormack had the story on Morning Ireland.
9: St John of God is one of the state's largest providers of services for people with intellectual disabilities and mental health difficulties. We'll be hearing from SIPTU in a few moments, but first, PJ Drudi, whose 36-year-old son David has an intellectual disability and is also autistic, voiced his concern to our reporter, Moira Hannan.
11: Parents are constantly worried what on earth is going to happen to my child in relation to day services, in relation to therapies, in relation to respite, in relation to residential. There's a whole range of areas that currently is provided by community services and provided quite well, uh, despite the argument that there's a lack of funding. So the real problem for us as parents would be, if this changes now from community services to the HSE, what on earth will happen exactly? And that's not to distrust the HSE, but to say there's an uncertainty that is very, very traumatic for parents and for families. The Department of Health and the Department of Public Expenditure need to become involved because they're the money. They're (laughs) the money people, really. They're the ones who supply the money to the HSE or don't supply it. And certainly the HSE's position is that they can only allocate what they've been allocated by the Department of Public Expenditure and the Department of Health. My plea would be, I urge them, the HSE and St. John God Community Service, to return immediately to the negotiating table to resolve any remaining disagreement they have. So, I mean, at the end of the day, the important people here are the people with disabilities and with mental illness. They're the people who really count. They're the people whose rights have been ignored for far too long, really. You know, the neglected citizens of Ireland. That's the problem.
9: PJ Drudy, they're a founding member of the National Parents and Families Association of St. John of God. Kevin Figgis, SIP2 Health Division organiser, joins us now. Kevin Figgis, parents are traumatised. How can their fears be allayed?
8: Uh, Good morning, um, well, I, I think people's fears can only be allayed if exactly as that contributor asked uh, happens, which is that the HSE and St John of God and the Department of Health return to the negotiating table. And um, I, I think that the way that this has developed over the last number of days, I think is really regretful uh, to think that here we have a provider of a public service, you know, over the last number of weeks writing to staff, writing to uh, service users, families, uh, and basically saying to them that these services were under threats, under threat, the threat to the, to the service user. You know, and obviously then for the workers themselves, they'll be worried about what the future lies for them. And and then that subsequently then led to the letters last week where they said, look, negotiations have broken down and as a result, we're going to do an orderly withdrawal and we'll be gone by the middle of August. Um, And we've seen statements from the HSE coming out uh, and obviously contradicting and talking about a €200 million budget. You hear about St John of God's talking about a €30 deficit. This is all stuff that really shouldn't be happening in the public because all it does is it provides... um, fear and it obviously uh, uh, destabilises the service itself so these people should really be returning to the negotiation table. There should be absolute transparency between them in relation to the funding that is actually required to provide this service. And they should be agreeing on the figure. And if there's currently a budget of £200 million, well, it doesn't seem beyond the wit of man that they can't sit down and work out the, the, the monies that are required uh, um, and get to that figure without putting the workers, the service users and indeed their families through this uh, stress.
9: Who does SIP2 blame?
8: Well, I, I think the responsibility lies with those negotiators on both sides. Because at the, on one side, the HSC and the Department of Health uh, are the people who provide the money. But on the other hand, St John of God's is the service provider and the employer. Um, and I think it's very, very clear that the responsibility of the negotiation lies in, at the negotiating table. Um, what it doesn't lie with is that they bring it out on various tranches in the public because then you have the situation where service providers, their families and staff feel that they become pawns in the game of chess of a negotiation and these services are far too vulnerable the service users are far too vulnerable you often hear phrases where people will say about you know a certain catchment being uh, vulnerable members in society I don't know how much more vulnerable you become than a service user that's using either intellectual disability or mental health services Because those people and their families are relying on these services in the community or therapies, they are relying on them just to survive to get by in the modern world.
9: You're talking about vulnerable services. Uh, the HSE says St John of God has more than enough money to continue its operations. St John of God says the annual funding allocation for the, from the HSE has been insufficient for over a decade and negatively impacts the ability to provide services consistent with good practice. Does SIPTU agree with that?
8: Well, what SIP2 believes is is that the proper level of funding whatever that figure should be, the proper level of funding should be provided in order to provide a quality service to the service user because at the end of the day, the service is being provided on behalf of the public. It's being funded by taxpayers' money. So the HSE and the Department of Health do have a responsibility to make sure that taxpayers' money is being spent properly and efficiently. So they do have that responsibility. But on the other side, St John of God then obviously have the responsibility of providing a quality service that meets Best practice standards, or uh, uh, whatever. so so the, the 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 answer to all of this lies in between the two of them. It's not it would not be appropriate if the HSE was seeking to underfund. But equally speaking, it wouldn't be appropriate if St. John of God's was seeking more than was required than than, uh, to meet the service. And I'm not suggesting either is the case. But I'm simply saying what is required is that middle ground, is that the HSE does come up. And, I mean, I think that's where the transparency lies. I think where St. John of God's... Uh, opens their books and provides full transparency in relation to the provision of the cost of the service but then I think that once that is done and I think once that's accepted by the HSC and the Department of Health but then the responsibility lies on them given the fact that this is a public service for them then to provide the funding for that
0: Kevin Figgis, SIP2 Health Division organiser speaking to Keen McCormack on Morning Ireland Journalist Bryony Gordon joined Claire Byrne on the phone to talk about her new book, Mad Woman How to Survive in a World
12: That Thinks You're the Problem.
2: Good morning Claire, how are you? I'm
12: very well thank you very much. I stayed up very late last night and over the last couple of nights reading uh, your book and I'm just fascinated to delve into your world and you've, you've placed yourself in this position where you talk about the most intimate things that happen to you and so many people rely on you now for support with their own experiences and I'm wondering how that feels for you because you've gone through difficult times of late and yet people expect you to be their champion
2: well i think i think i've you know i've written about my experiences with ocd and addiction and eating disorders and i think what i'm trying you know the the reason i first wrote about these things about 10 years ago was it was kind of out of desperation because i heard that other people had these things but no one ever sort of said you know no one admitted it and so I wrote my first book uh, my first book about mental health mad girl is a kind of way to go if you have this thing too please it's like come and congregate around the book and we can know that we're not mad or we are mad but we're not bad (laughs) um and so but like so what I've tried to do I think we have this idea don't we of like there has to be a neat narrative we want everything to be like a movie so there's like a neat beginning middle and end you know and it's like We expect, you know, real people to kind of face their demons down or whatever and then triumph over adversity and walk off into the sunset and Mm -hmm. live happily ever after. And, of course, that isn't what happens. And so I think I'm trying to kind of show the reality of recovery, you know, from mental illness and mental health issues, because a lot of these things are really baked in, you know, over years. Like, I'm sure there are lots of people listening who, you know, we we still don't have adequate mental health care across the world, you know, and... So these things get really ingrained and you don't just kind of cure them with a pill and then it's all like fine and dandy for the rest of your life.
12: Yeah. And uh, the mad in the title of the book, Mad Woman, it's it's not mad Mm. in the classical sense. You're angry here and you say that you've only recently felt able to be angry about what's been going on in your own life.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of the ways I've come to with it is I think a lot of mental illness is really appropriate, actually. And by that, I mean, I think that a lot of these things, depression, anxiety, I mean, all mental illnesses are kind of your brain's quite sophisticated way of telling you something's not right in your life. And um, I think a lot of us are sort of gaslit and made to feel like we're the problem. That is that is why the subtitle is, you know, how to survive in a world that wants you to think you're the problem. And I think especially with women, you know, Um, we can see it just with all the the problems people have you know people have encountered with uh, menopause and hormonal links between mental health and how it's always dismissed and it's only recently we've started talking about this stuff properly and I felt like I really wanted to write a book about why that sort of soothed people and said if you're feeling this that's okay and actually it's not just okay it's probably appropriate and I sort of I worked that out during the pandemic when I was really depressed. And But it was the first time in my life I looked around and I felt like everyone else was depressed too. And, mm-hmm. and of course we were. Of course we were because, it you know, we were all locked down and that was the kind of appropriate way to be. And so it started to make me feel like, mm, what if the quote-unquote mad among us are actually the most sane? They're the people who are showing... That there's something wrong in the world, and you know, and, and we know that a lot of um, mental health outcomes are really heavily linked to you know income, poverty, race, all of these kind of things which show up in inequalities. You know,
12: and, and also that basic thing which I really enjoyed your description of how we were brought up and what we saw. You know, the, the women around us trying to make themselves smaller by eating less yeah. and denying themselves all of the time. I mean. How are any of us normal in inverted commas?
2: Yeah, I did really feel that. I mean, I've my whole life is you know eating disorders, and it's you know it, it surprised me. You know, I, I during the pandemic, a very a binge eating disorder became a thing, and I didn't even really know it was a thing. You know, I'd experienced bulimia in my twenties, and I thought because I was binging but not purging, it was somehow okay. And, um, you know, and of course it wasn't. And it's a a really serious illness. But the more I looked into sort of diet culture and how ubiquitous it is, I thought, God, it's a miracle any woman knows you know like has had any periods of normal eating
12: Mm -hmm. and you felt guilty then for seeking help from well you had uh, peter who was your regular therapist but then you had access to naomi as well because you were speaking to her about uh, research on in a professional sense and that's another part of it that you feel guilty about using the resources that are at your disposal to help you
2: yeah i think also we still i mean I've still, you know, the, the, the kind of abiding symptoms of most mental illnesses is that they tell you that you don't have them and you're just, you're just a bad person. Do you know what I mean? And so I think we, when we're in them, it's very hard to reach out for help and accept that we need help and that we deserve it, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and that was very much my experience, even as a mental health campaigner, you know, even with all the knowledge I have of mental illness, you forget it all when you're in it and I you know I do think I want to write books like this because I want to show people that just as you if you had a chronic health condition you would probably have help over your life you know it's the same with chronic mental health conditions and you know you need different people for different things And, and hopefully one day that will be seen as the norm but it's not right now.
12: You um, talk as well about your own experience of early menopause and you realised how important the public conversation that started in recent years around the topic led by people like Davina McCall, who we've spoken to on the programme here. But I did see uh, on on Instagram and on other social media, there appears to be a bit of a pushback against that now with women saying, stop marketing the menopause at me. I've I've had enough. Mm. Do you think that we strike that balance correctly?
2: I don't, I don't think it's possible to have balance because it's been so uh, we've been so quiet about it for so long that you sort of have to be right to the other extreme, right? To kind of come back to the middle. Mm-hmm. But I do think, I also have this thing and it's very interesting how older women as well, I hear, not not all but some, you know, they talk about oh, you know, your generation you know, I sailed through the menopause and I think well that's great for you but not every not every woman of your generation sailed through the menopause and I know that from my inbox when I write about it right and um, I do think as well if men went through the menopause it would be the only thing we were allowed to talk about there'd be like <laughs> there'd be telly shows presented by like Jeremy Clarkson or whoever you know testing out the latest HRT or, you know it's <laughs> it's I uh, so I will keep banging on about it because for me it was it's not just the menopause it really highlights the issue of hormones and mental health Mm -hmm. and how absolutely crucial they are. Because I first developed obsessive compulsive disorder when I was 12, which was obviously just before I got my period. Um, When I was pregnant, um, I was very, very unwell mentally. I was under psychiatric care. And, you know, it now turns out we think it's because of the progesterone. I'm kind of allergic to progesterone. One in 20 women are progesterone intolerant, you know, and it has terrible effects on their mental health. You know, this is what we now call PMDD. But you know it it's it, this is all stuff that i'm sure one day we'll look back and go i can't believe they didn't like they just didn't think to kind of look into that or mm. discuss it but the impact it's had on my mental health over my life is huge you know i, I you know my Yeah, so I I just kind of want to shout for people that
12: can't. Mm -hmm. And I really admire that you continue to shout and you continue to campaign and and gather people to you. Because, again, that struck me when I was reading your book, how difficult that must be when you're not having an easy time yourself to maintain that campaign.
2: Yeah, I definitely think like the last few years have been quite they were tough because i was going through some stuff but also because i felt like oh i'm a public face a mental health campaigner like people want to see that you're happy they want to see that you're okay you know they don't want to see that things aren't great and also i kind of went into this very kind of almost gaslighting myself you know where i was like people have had enough of your mental health issues you need to just get over them briny um and of course that (laughs) that in itself is a symptom of depression right Mm. um so it is it is complicated, but I've come to the place where I'm, I need to talk about this stuff because there are still, you know, despite us thinking everyone can talk about mental health now, that is just not the case. There will be people listening right now who are deep, deep, deep in mental health issues, you know, and, and having to put on like a million different masks every morning just to get up and out of the house, you know. We have this notion of the mentally ill as people kind of rocking back and forth in a padded cell, and it can be that. But it's also lots of people, you know, who are having to face the day and they're dying inside, you know. And I write for these people who are, you know, are having to kind of pretend that everything's okay when deep down it's not you know and we're all better off for talking about this
12: stuff Mm -hmm. and you write about recovery not being a linear process rather than Mm. the mess that we encounter as we try to get better so for yourself where are you in that process now
2: I mean right now I'm I'm fi- I'm quite tired from <laughs> but that's good I'm aware of it you know I don't think that we have this notion of happy don't we and happy is great obviously but it's not um, it's not achievable all the time. And so I'm very aware that, you know, I can cycle through several different emotions in a day now. Do you know what I mean? And it's, it's, it all passed. This too shall pass. Right. Yeah. And so I'm good right now. And um, I don't take that for granted. And I try and enjoy the good moments because I know they will pass as well. Mm-hmm. And, but I'm, you know, I'm here, I'm functioning. And, you know, as long as I'm able to do that, I will talk about this stuff for the people
12: that aren't. And you're doing this amazing challenge in April, two marathons, 70 <laughs> miles from Brighton to London in two weeks. Oh, uh, you, what am I doing? Well, I've, I've, that's what I was going to ask you. But, you know, you've signed up for it. so.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I'm going to run the Brighton Marathon. Then I'm going to run the distance between Brighton and London over the two, over two weeks. And then when I get to London, I'm going to run the London Marathon. And this is all to A, raise money for mental health mates, which is the amazing peer support uh, network out there where people get out and move for their mental health. But it's also to show that exercise is for everyone. And, um, you know, when you stop doing it for the way it makes you look and you start doing it for the way it makes you feel, it's really transformational and it has been for me. It's been one of the key, uh, most important, like, tenets of my mental health, I suppose, is running, CrossFit, all sorts of stuff.
12: Well, Brian, best of luck with it. And the book is, is so enjoyable. It is uh, out now. It's called Mad Woman. And it is really funny, <laughs> along with everything thank else you, that, love. That, that it brings with it. So thank you so much for talking to us. It's called Mad Woman, How to Survive in a World That Thinks You're the Problem, published by Headline. And if you've been affected by anything we've just discussed, please do do go to rt.ie forward slash helplines for help and advice. And that was journalist and author Bryony Gordon
0: on Today with Claire Byrne. Oliver Callum was talking all things children's books and he was joined by author Sarah Webb on the show this morning. Hello, Oliver.
6: Always a very colourful um, (laughs) presence in in their lives for all all of us who love books. Oh, (laughs)
3: thank you. I was listening to the brilliant news about the BAFTAs. Yes. But what struck me was Samantha Morton. I've always loved her since I saw her. Is it in in America she was in? Yeah,
6: and I think we kind of to think she's Irish. She does such a good Irish accent. Yeah. Yeah.
3: But she was talking about the importance of representation for her. And seeing Kess, mm-hmm. and she said, I recognised myself. The stories we tell have the power to change children's lives. Yeah. And I really, I, I kind of gulped at that. I was almost in tears because it's really what we're talking about today. It's the power of stories to change children's lives. And what I'm really concerned with is Irish children's lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. so. Yeah. No, it's a
6: fantastic point because when we take ourselves back to when we're uh, little people and yeah. books were very heavy and difficult, time, you you forget as an adult how new the world is to yeah, to yeah. the young eyes.
3: It's funny, I was talking to uh, my taxi driver, well he's not mine, obviously the taxi driver. <laughs> okay, yeah. Hello Joe, uh, <laughs> who crazy. very kindly brought me in this morning and he was saying he remembered a book from his childhood called I Am David and he can remember how yeah. emotional it made him and how it was quite... Quite scary, you know, it had the Nazis chasing a mm-hmm. young boy. But he he spoke about it with such, you know, um, wisdom and joy, and he remembered it so much. And I think you were in our shop halfway up the stairs recently, I was, Oliver. Yes, a winner and of an
6: Irish book award.
3: Yeah, and you were talking about some books that you loved as a child, including lovely Uncle Don Conroy.
6: Yes. Uncle Don yes yeah, paint for fun yeah 1985 but you were talking
3: with, with such pleasure about these books that you yeah. had as a child and it sure. was a Brer Rabbit one is that right uh, Inab yes Inab uh, well the
6: greenage, the Greedy Rabbit and all the stories yeah, which I think was my first birthday yeah. uh, gift on the 27th of December <laughs> Still can, bitter about Christmas.
3: You can but still uh, remember it. Yeah, though, I remember which is just even
6: being like, I can even remember being in bed reading it. Mm. It's it's strange memory, What do, do you have very early memories of reading? Yeah,
3: so I didn't read fluently until I was nine and a half. Really? ten. Yeah, I had delayed reading, um, but I was really lucky. I had a wonderful, wonderful mother who read to me, and my father, they were both, and my grandparents and my childminder, they all read to me. Um, so I grew up with covered in stories I was (laughs) loused with stories and um, I was really lucky because my mum was a primary school teacher so although I wasn't great at reading she understood the power of stories and I had these Disney little records and they're kind of like audiobooks now and you Mm -hmm. put them on your record player and then it said when Tinkerbell does her little bell turn the page. So I wasn't reading but I could kind of follow along with you the book. You would hear the actions. Yeah. And so, but what was really important is my dad was really into Irish history and still is. And he kind of spotted the fact that a lot of the books he was reading to me were English. You know, Winnie the Pooh, yes. Blyton. So he made a real effort to go out. He went to a shop called Hodges Figgis, which still exists of course. And he found Sinead de Valera who was Dev's wife. Oh, um, right. Irish fairy tales. So he read that to me, he read... You have the book um, of studio and yeah. his little f- yeah. fairies
6: dancing in a forest.
3: Yeah, but Sinead de Valera um, and um, Lady Gregory before her mm. um, really believed in the power of Irish uh, myths and legends and fairies tales and they really wanted to pass them on to the next generation of Irish children growing up in their country, Ireland, our country.
6: The big Gaelic revival, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah,
3: yeah. And there's a lot of magical books now which are reimagining Irish myths and legends. There's a beautiful book by Ellen Ryan and Shirley Shona Macdonald called Girls Who Slay Monsters. Yeah. Did you see that I one? I did, Oliver? and there was a follow-up as well. Yeah, um, boys Gods don't, don't Cry. Gods Don't Cry, yes. Yeah, so what boys. Ellen Ryan is so cleverly doing with her illustrators, that's illustrated by Connor Merriman, is she's taking these gorgeous traditional story tales or stories and myths and legends and she's updating them for modern Mm. children and she's kind of including representation. There's a farting dog in one of the stories, which is just wonderful. These are all
6: true Irish legends. Yeah,
3: (laughs) yeah. No, but she's reimagining the world and she's passing it on to the next generation and I think that is so, so important.
6: It is. Take us back, because there was a time it feels like, uh, we just mentioned Don Conroy and people mm. like that, there was a time when mm. children's books, Irish children's books, yeah. really thrived and everyone kind of talked about them almost more so than, yeah. than the English so
3: ones. So, I've been a bookseller for a long, long time, Oliver. Mm. I've been in books for nearly 30 years. And when I was a very, very young bookseller in Waterstones in Dawson Street, which is now Tower Records, um, I ran the children's department. I had a ball and we I worked with Paul Murray and John Boyne and Cormac Kinsella and Helen Carr and all these amazing people who have gone on to do amazing things. Helen is now one of my editors in O'Brien Press. And when I ran the children's section there, we had two whole bays devoted to Irish children's books. And this isn't books of This is like Irish books published in Ireland uh, very, very proudly. And people used to come in and say, right, what have you got for a seven-year-old that's Irish? What have you got? do you have any picture books that are Irish? It was a big thing. And I think it was because Irish children's books were quite new and exciting then. Yeah. And everyone would have known who Marita Connor McKenna is. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, she is really... <laughs> kind Under
6: of the, the Hawthorn tree. Yes, exactly.
3: Is it yeah. exactly, well, is that Girls. La- is that
6: late 80s her book came out? Yeah, but it's so 30 years old. Ages, didn't it?
3: Yeah, and it's still... It's still it's, it very rarely leaves the Irish top 10. Is that right? Or sorry... Top 100. Oh, we'll right. talk about the top we'll 10 in maybe in a minute.
6: But, but, but the year you're yeah. talking about this, this is not that long ago. No, it's yourself, the mid-90s. Mid-90s. Yeah. In so in the
3: mid-90s Irish children's books were huge mm-hmm. and you would have Owen Colfer on the radio, yes. um, Tom McCochran.
6: Yes, I think people
3: will remember those amazing nature books. um, Yeah, Run With The Wind, which are actually republished now, which is amazing. But yeah, so there was a time where we didn't take it for granted. Eamon
6: Kelly's stories as well, I remember. In the 90s, they were flying.
3: Yeah, so there there was amazing stuff happening. O'Brien Press were flying the flag strongly. There was Pool Bag. Attic Books had uh, an imprint for young, you know, teenage girls. So it was flying it, flying it. Mm -hmm. And then... Things started to change. And it's only last year that I suddenly started realising, hang on a second here. You know, we are missing something here. And if I'm taking all this for granted, you know, what is happening with other parents, caretakers, librarians, teachers? I'd kind of taken my eye off it a bit. And it was only last spring, Marisa Conlon McKenna had another book out called Fairy Hill. And she hadn't written a children's book for years and years and years. And Fairy Hill is amazing. Mm-hmm. It's a, a take on the stolen child story. It's kind of for age nine plus. Wow. And I realised, uh, Marita is a great friend of mine. I love her dearly. And I was checking the bestseller list. I was going, yeah, I hope she gets to number one. Yeah, this she is really huge, deserves A huge it. moment
6: in children's huge book. Huge yeah.
3: moment. Nothing. Oliver, it didn't hit the top 10. Now, it did extremely well and Mm -hmm. is continuing to sell extremely well. It's still a brilliant book, but it didn't hit the top 10. And then I realised Owen Coffer, another huge name in Irish children's books, wasn't hitting the top 10. His last book, Juniper's Christmas, Mm -hmm. hit the top 10 in the New York Times
12: bestsellers.
3: (laughs) New York Times, (laughs) but not Irish Times. Something's going (laughs) wrong here. Um, Oliver Jeffers hitting the New York Times bestsellers uh, Sarah Crossan Winning the Carnegie Award now, the Carnegie is a really it's like our the Booker for children's book awards. Yeah, um, you know. So all this was happening, and yet Irish children's books were not really being valued as much as I think they should be in Ireland.
6: So, it's, who buys uh, the children's books? Is it the parents usually mm. come in and buy? Them? So Irish parents are yeah. not buying our own books. Well, what is the current state of the of the top ten? Yeah. In the so last few years?
3: over the last so last year, I did a lot, So I started getting a little bit obsessed Oliver so So (laughs) I started it yeah yeah well look isn't it lovely to have a life passion Oliver well it's a good obsession yeah if you're going to be obsessed about something being obsessed (laughs) about children's books isn't necessarily a bad thing (laughs) so last year I tracked it really carefully for 15 weeks between May and early August And no Irish children's books charted during that time. But I compared it against adult original fiction. So Colin Barrett, who you had in recently, I loved that interview. It was gorgeous. So his book charted, right? And books like that chart, even though they're debut Irish novels... Um, so, and his book would have been original fiction. OK, mm. so in the original fiction chart in the same time, there were 96 Irish writers for adults charting, which is 64% of the market. And over the last six weeks, I've been studying it again. <laughs> again, zero Irish children's books in the top 10. Right. Zero for so six the weeks adult since January. Adults
6: books are enormous.
3: 68%. Selling. Since January in the original fiction for adults. For yeah. adults. So there's a huge disconnect there. there is. We're supporting Irish adult folks and we're supporting our rugby players and our runners. We're supporting Killian Murphy. Go Killian! Mm. he's brilliant. We're having a
6: huge moment yeah, for Irish culture. Yeah, we're having a
3: moment. But the thing is, Irish children's books are having a moment it's just it's not always being recognised you mentioned uh, Steve McCarthy and Paddy Donnelly last week yes. so Steve and Paddy were long listed for the Carnegie Award for illustration and this is a big deal mm-hmm. and I was delighted now that you mentioned it if one of those two is shortlisted it will be incredible if they won it will be out of this world but Sarah Crossan who was our laureate in Ogue a few years ago mm-hmm. did win the Carnegie Award a few years ago
6: I didn't get the coverage that uh, no. you, you think it deserves. No. Sarah Cross has a big book out this year, doesn't she? She has.
3: She's where, the heart, where the Heart is, I think Where the called. Heart should be, I think. Yes, thank uh, you. Because I
6: know The Guardian put it on all of their books. Yes. And they mixed children and adult yes. books together and said this is one yeah. to watch for this yeah. year.
3: Yeah,
6: yeah. Um, so what, what's the problem?
3: Well, I've been thinking about this deeply, deeply, Oliver. And the, the problem is there is no one problem. So therefore, there's no one solution. Uh, one of the reasons this is happening is... A lot of big publishers have a lot of money to put behind brand names. So, if you ask anyone in the street now to name some children's authors, they may come up with these big names for you mm-hmm. and they will know them because there are posters out there, mm-hmm. there are Netflix shows, there are movies. Look at the new Wonka movie, you know? Yeah. That has shot Roald Dahl's book, Wonka, even though he didn't write it. It was another writer, called course, Pounder wrote it. So, um, Roald it Dahl has, didn't write? Well, he's... He's not with us anymore, Oliver. Oh, sorry, so the, the can't film do...
6: you're talking about. I <laughs> That's what you are talking about. The but book. No,
3: no, there's a book yes, called Wonka, yes, not, which is a take on. It's not
6: a story he wrote. Yeah, yeah. it's a prequel thing that they've
3: invented. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But exactly. the Roald
6: Dahl. It's a brand. as you It's a it's brand. Become a corporate entity, yeah, really, the man hasn't is it? no
3: longer with us. Yeah. yeah, and bless his cotton socks, he does not need the money anymore.
6: So our <laughs> Irish children, they're reading loads of Roald Dahl still. Yeah, the Parents yeah. are still buying them. The Enid yes. Blyton's Roald Dahl. Obviously, the more modern ones like David Walliams, which are being churned. They're being churned out. Yeah. Uh, Wimpy Kid as well. JK Rowling, obviously, still there. Yeah, it's
3: funny, it slipped a little bit, but yeah, still there. Still there. Yeah. Uh, So these are
6: decisions the parents are making because the money is there behind them.
3: Yeah, but also they're they're ones they know. So it's kind of a chicken and egg one. Because they know these books, they feel comfortable with these books, so they buy the books. Nostalgia plays a huge role. And this is a, a kind of Dal Blighton factor as well. We read. Alan Blyton when we were growing up Oliver yeah. so they're in our heads they're, <laughs> push, they're in our DNA push it on the next you know? generation
6: you did to learn this too yeah <laughs>
3: <laughs> so but you, you know I, um, in Halfway Up the Stairs like parents come in and they they gravitate towards Ina Blyton and we go would you like to meet another type of book that's just as funny as Blighton but's Irish they always go yeah they I would do they really yeah okay, they and we react go Shane Hegarty he's your man yeah. he is Blighton. yes he can you know he's Brilliant,
0: Shane. And Roald
6: Dahl and all of those mixed up, isn't
0: he? Author Sarah Webb on The Oliver Callan Show and discoveririshkidsbooks.ie is the website Sarah mentioned. Well, a very interesting topic on today with Claire Byrne shining a light on the science of colour and Dr Shane Bergen, physicist at the UCD School of Education was on the show.
10: Yeah, is it in our heads, or are things actually the colors that that we think they are? Right, these these questions have are as much philosophical as they are science scientific, and they have obsessed scientists for hundreds of years. The uh, late great Isaac Newton, during a, a bout of plague in um, the when, when was it hundreds of years ago, he he took himself off to uh, the countryside and he was held up in a barn. And uh, being Isaac Newton, he started to do experiments. He was very curious about the nature of light. There was a little hole in the barn door and through it came a ray of light. And he was interested in what was in that light. And he'd been obsessed about this for ages. He used to do terrible things like sticking spoons into his eye to try and see what was going on. And uh, I wouldn't recommend it, obviously. (laughs) We can't condone that. Glad you said that. Fortunately, he stopped and he went back to this beam of light that was coming through his barn door. And so he was in a dark room and with a, with a shaft of light coming through it. And he wanted to understand what was in that light. So he took something called a prism, which is a triangular piece of glass. And what prisms do is they um, they break the light up into its constituent colours. Um, all he knew at that point was that if you pass light through an object like water, it bends. And so he was able to kind of play with that basic concept and to try and uh, break up the light into its constituent colours. So what I mean by that is he could make a rainbow. He could take... The light from the sun, which we call white light, and he could turn it into the colours that we we know uh, and love so well. And so th- this was fundamental to be able to do this, to see it in, in real life. The only other places that we would see it naturally occurring are things like rainbows, of course. But Newton had cracked it, literally. He had cracked open the light to see what was inside it. Mm-hmm. And we've I- been working with that since.
12: And when we talk about colours then, we have to treat black separately, don't we?
10: Yeah, black is the absence of color, and white is, we know now, all of the colors combined. Mm-hmm. So in in uh, secondary school, um, we had this thing. It was it was a, a wheel of color, right? It was like the uh, a, um, a spinning wheel. And if you turn this wheel uh, really, really fast, all the the rainbow colors that were within it started to blur into one another, and it eventually looked white. And so, um, which is incredible. I mm-hmm. think most kids all would the have these together, in school. together. Yes, equals white white light. Um, Newton was, was really curious, though, about the prism. He wondered, was the prism breaking open the light or was the prism actually adding some sort of impurity that might create the colour? So what he cleverly did was he, he cracked open the light and where, where there was blue light coming out of the prism, he stuck another prism in there. Uh, and his hypothesis was that if, if it was the prism that was making the colour, then more colour would come from the blue light. And that's not mm-hmm. what happened. So he was able to, to confirm that the light itself, the white light was made up of all of those colours.
12: Did, uh, ha- did he have to ask 10 different people, is that blue or do you see that as green? Because that's <laughs> another problem as well, isn't it?
10: <laughs> it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. A couple of years ago. um, Yeah. So the light goes into our eyes. It's important to say that. It seems so obvious, but for a long, long time, it It was actually thought that our eyes were somehow like torches, that they were sending beams out Out. into the world and interpreting the world like touch. Right. Because you think touch is that way. You have to Mm -hmm. touch something in order for you to to sense it. So with your eyes, the light is going in. But for a long time, the Greeks would have thought that something was going out of your eyes into the world to sense it, to touch the things that we would see as having Mm colour. Remarkable.
12: But just to to go back to that, that. We, we don't know what the other person is seeing. Like, I don't know what colours you're seeing. Like, the, the cover on the microphone is blue to yes, me. Is, yes. it, is it
10: blue to you? It, it, yeah, but maybe <laughs> I've just learned that that's blue, <laughs> well, right? <maybe>. So <laughs> Someone told you it was blue. Yeah, exactly. And as a child, I'd said blue and I got rewarded and on I went. Um. So, it, yeah, seeing is believing is the phrase, right? And so, But sometimes we can get confused. So our eyes have this capacity to sense not just low light things and black and white and those things. We can also see colours colour. Um, and we have cones in our eyes. We have photoreceptor cells in our eyes that are able to sense three types of colour, red, green and blue. OK, the primary colours. And we can mix those together in different ways in our eyes so that we can sense about 100 different colours. And most of the time, we're not going to argue. The big red light here in the studio is red. And you and I would confirm that the microphone is blue, the banana is yellow, etc. And we just learn these things and we can talk about why they are those colours. But occasionally, we, we get confused. And a couple of years ago in twenty fifteen there was this famous image that came from Scotland. It was on the internet called the dress. And it was a two tone striped dress. And some people, but half the population, saw it as black and blue. Yeah. And the other half saw it as white and gold. And um, so you, were, you could have two people looking at the same photograph and they would argue that, um, you know, what you see is wrong and what I see is right. It's driving people mad. Yeah, and that all came down to something called colour constancy, which is basically that when we look at the objects in the world, we don't just see there's a bit of yellow, I'm going to add that in, and a bit of, of blue or whatever. What we do is we look for colours and we look at the contrasts of colours that are there. And so our brain does this very complex computation to try and and put together. Uh, an image. So, of course, like we, you know, we have to, We, have, it's very complicated, but I think seeing is still believing, yeah. right? You know, but things like that show you that, the, you know, there is a certain amount of processing that goes on in our brain to interpret color, and that, right. that's pretty cool. And
12: different species will process color in a different way. So, yeah. if you have a dog and a bird and a human looking at the rainbow, we'll see different things. Isn't that incredible? It so, is we, incredible. we see
10: the, the so called seven colors of the rainbow. We only say there are seven because Newton said seven. So seven was a religious uh, number, but there's an infinite number of colours in the rainbow. We just have decided there are seven and we've given them names. You're
12: really messing with my head now.
10: <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned about different animals. Yes, the dog will only see certain colours. So if you're out for a walk with the dog and you see a rainbow, the dog will see it, but they won't see all the colours. They won't see the redder end of things. Uh, similarly, birds and insects and things like that, they see a whole other spectrum of colour that we can't see. So when certain birds and insects and uh, various flying things, look at flower petals, they're able to see colours that we can't see. So just our eyes can't perceive them. It's not that they don't exist, it's just that we're not able to see them. And I th- my favourite one of these is the, the red rag to the bull. You know that yes. phrase, right? It's, in fact, that the, the bull can't really distinguish that it's red. So... All the bull is getting angry about is the shimmering movement of the cloth or the rag. And that's what gets their goal. Could
12: be yellow. Could be a yellow rag to a bull. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Same reaction.
10: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. That's (laughs) worth
12: knowing. That's good. We put that in (laughs) our arsenal of information. So when it comes to adding colours, to things. How do we do that, Jane?
10: Yeah, the the colouring in, right? Um, And when we look at prehistoric art, we would see that they had the most basic rudimentary colours, but they they had to to find pigment to create paint. And nowadays we can do that, uh, you know, we think of a a colour television, right? Uh, How it's able to work. It literally has tiny little pixels, right? And each pixel will have a little bit of red, a little bit of blue and a little bit of green. And they'll add them together in different ratios to make the colours that we all perceive and they're able to do that with such precision and such accuracy that we just see something that looks like the real world. Mm -hmm. But if you wanted to to go back to to basics in terms of your Crayola or indeed going back to how they might have done something like the Book of Kells, they had to dig materials up from the ground and uh, they they would have had to add water or oil to them to turn them into paint. And um, that's incredibly difficult to do. Certain colours like blue are very hard to find naturally naturally. Um, so um, people would have had to source these things and there was a, there was a real trade back in the, uh, in the in the prehistoric days of people sending pigments around the world and a couple of years ago scientists in Trinity College did a study on the pigments in the book of Kells to try and figure out where those constituent colours came from and they found that they came from much much further afield than they'd previously thought of course they did that using a non-invasive technique I should stress that yes. called spectroscopy mm-hmm. so which is this, the study of spectra, the study of of color that scientists will do, and they still do it today.
12: Well, Kevin has been on to us, and he would like to know how do they make white paint. <laughs> and I understand why he's asking that question, given what we've said that yeah. white is a mixture of all of the other colors, absolutely. Except black.
10: Yeah, and why is milk white, and uh, these sorts of things? So white, white, the whiteness comes from when you have a, a, a phenomenon known as scattering. So it's that the white light comes in from the room around you and it, it interacts with the particles in the paint or the particles that are suspended in the milk and they create white. Mm-hmm. I have some news, though, for, for Kevin, is that the paint isn't white, <laughs> right? The paint is only white when you shine light <laughs> on it. This
12: sheet of paper I'm holding it's up, n- it, that's not white It's either. not white
10: because how would we know if we were in the room here and there were no lights on, what colour would it be? It would have no colour, mm-hmm. right? So it is only white because light is shining on it.
0: Dr. Shane Bergen from the UCD School of Education on Today with Claire Byrne. And that's all we have time for on this edition of Playback Daily. So from me, Louise Herity, thanks for listening and take care.